Welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, and I'm your Bitcoin Dad. This is an interview with a podcaster named Seth. Seth has a blog called Seth for Privacy with a lot of really great privacy tools and articles, including a graveyard of Bitcoin fungibility, which brings to mind Google's famous graveyard of dead Google projects, but instead Every line is a story about Bitcoin's lack of layer one native privacy screwing someone up. And I think that Seth's critical view of Bitcoin privacy is a really important voice in the debate around privacy and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. He talks a lot about Monero. As our listeners know, Chris and I don't mess with altcoins. We're fascinated by them because often they are a fun view of human drama and greed playing out very quickly. But I think Monero is slightly different. Monero has a very interesting history and a very focused privacy community around that. I think even hardcore Bitcoiners, if they looked at all the facts around Monero, would probably say that's a project that has some values. So Seth provides a view that I think is complementary to the strongly maximalist views on Bitcoin expressed by me and Chris. I hope you enjoy it, and I encourage you to check out Seth's podcast and his blog to learn more about actionable steps towards personal privacy that you can take today. Enjoy the interview. Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Monday, May 5th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here with Seth from the opt-out pod. Hi, Seth. Hey there. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Really excited to just come on, chat Bitcoin, chat a lot of different things, maybe chat a little bit of, of Monero. And uh, I'm just always excited for the, the opportunity to, to go on someone else's podcast and not be the interviewer, be the interviewee. So should be fun. Yes. In many ways, you're an inspiration to me. I've looked at your self-hosted tools and I've asked you questions about getting set up podcasting myself. And I just really like what you're doing at the opt-out pod. It was definitely not something I had had planned. I kicked it off, but just, I, I think like you saw that there was a, a gap in the space and some topics that I selfishly wanted to cover and some people I selfishly wanted to interview and a podcast is, is a great cover for that. So um, it's been a, it's been a blast to be able to do. And I, I mean, just the best part has been able to see people benefit from the content I'm able to put out. Um, it's really a blessing to, to chat with people and hear that they're their privacy journeys are improved, their approaches to personal privacy and helping friends and family along the way are, are getting better along the way. And um, it's been a, a great chance for me to to learn so much along the way as well. So that's been really fun. And I'm um, just always glad to to hear other good podcasts kicking off because I think it is such a, a powerful medium to get our thoughts, our our approaches to to relate the world and to life out there and and have some good good conversations with good people. So excited to to chat more today as well here. So Seth, you are primarily Monero focused on your podcast because of the privacy benefits of the Monero cryptocurrency protocol. Can you describe briefly the history of Monero and then how Monero relates to Bitcoin and the wider crypto ecosystem? It actually shares a lot of similarities with Bitcoin and it really attracts a lot of similar people or at least similar people to to what Bitcoin attracted in the early days. Um, it's a very cypherpunk, very privacy focused, but really just a self-sovereignty focused um, cryptocurrency and community. And like you mentioned, the thing that 
that most people know that sets it apart is its its approach to user privacy. Um, and ultimately, Monero was started in in 2014. It has a an interesting history uh, that we don't have to dive into too much today. But it actually was forked away from from scammers and a scam project. But actually, the base was this unique protocol that was not just a fork of Bitcoin. Um, which back in in 2014 and when all this was happening, there really only were forks of Bitcoin, um, code forks themselves, and chain forks. Um, but this was built on the the crypto note protocol, which was a, a unique protocol from the ground up. And what it, it did was it tried to take this focus of um, user privacy as a, a key objective. It, it also tried to take a focus of ASIC resistance as a key objective, which we can chat a little bit more about why a project may want to be resistant to ASICs. Um, and then it also really focused on broad decentralization in a few different ways. Um, but it kickstarted in 2014 and a, a community rapidly formed around it that was very focused on building out this tool that was in a lot of ways, a, a hedge to Bitcoin and a chance to fix a lot of the things that maybe were problematic with Bitcoin then and because Bitcoin doesn't change very much or are really still problematic today. Um, and so it's it's iterated a lot over the years between 2014 and now. Um, the Monero community is not uh, is not against hard forks and network upgrades. We realize that they can be a valuable tool to improve what is ultimately software, which is both Bitcoin and Monero are software. Um, and along that way, we've kind of built out this this three headed holistic approach to user privacy. Um, and this this approach ensures that every person who uses Monero, no matter if they are deeply embedded in the cryptocurrency space, understand all of the basic concepts, um, have a deep understanding of what it means to be private on chain, or if they know absolutely nothing, have just downloaded a wallet from the app store and started receiving and sending transactions. Both those people gain extremely strong privacy in Monero. And a really quick intro to how Monero does that, um, it uses three separate approaches. Uh, one is called stealth addresses or one-time addresses. Um, and ultimately what this means is that there are no public keys, no public addresses published on chain. So if you look at the Monero blockchain and you you pull up a transaction or you send a transaction to a friend, they can't see the address of the source UTXO. They can't see, um, you can't see your address on chain when you're looking at a transaction there. Um, and that, that is done through this thing called one-time addresses or, or stealth addresses. How exactly do these stealth addresses or one-time addresses work? Can you provide a semi-technical description? Just because looking at Bitcoin blocks, it's hard to imagine what something like that would look like. It's a foreign concept to most people in Bitcoin, but there are a couple of similar concepts in Bitcoin that are are obviously optional and are done at the, the application layer. So if anyone who's listening is familiar with Samurai Wallet, um, they use a, a tool called PayNims or Bit47. You'll hear sometimes it referred to because that was the original way that it was proposed for Bitcoin. And there's also, there's a recent proposal um, called I think silent addresses. Uh, I'm not sure if I remember the name perfectly, but it's a, another protocol that's very similar um, that was that was uh, brought forward by Ruben Somson, I think just in the last month or two. Um, and stealth addresses in Monero work similarly. Um, the main difference is that in Monero, everyone uses them. Um, you can't choose not to use them. Whereas in Bitcoin, very few people use something like a, a paynim to create this unlinked address on chain from the address that you're providing to people publicly. Um, but in Monero, so very simply the way it works, and I am not deeply technical in the actual cryptography of how these things work, um, but basically what happens is 
you provide your address to the person who wants to send funds to you. Just like in Bitcoin, it's a a long string. Actually, in Monero, it's a much longer string than in Bitcoin. And when they go to send a transaction to that, they just type it into a wallet, press send. They don't have to do anything special. But when their wallet actually sees that address that they paste in, their wallet will use two different keys that are within that address that they're given. Um, and it uses those keys plus the the private key of that person's wallet to create a unique one-time address that only the recipient can decode as being their transaction and as being directed towards them. Does this mean that Monero transactions are interactive because you're taking elements of the recipient's address and combining them with elements of the sender's address? Or are both parties able to scan the chain for these subkeys or these clues as to addresses they control? Yeah, it is It is not interactive. You don't have to be able to communicate with the person whose address you have to be able to build these one-time addresses. Both the keys that you actually need are in the address they'll give you anyways. So they're not interactive in the sense that you don't have to communicate or work with the other person to generate this one-time address. The main trade-off and the the downside is when you generate this address, because you can't just go to a block explorer or go to some kind of daemon or anything like that and say, these are my addresses, what's my balance? You have to go transaction by transaction in every block um, from the point that you, you, stripped, you created that wallet, and you have to scan each output to see if that output belongs to you big downside. And that is, it's not a small downside that the sync times within Monero are much trickier. And, and that same downside applies to things like silent addresses that Ruben Thompson has um, proposed. And I think similarly to Bit47, though I think it has less of a drawback to sync time than silent addresses. That's really interesting because I synced a Monero node in preparation for this interview, though I haven't found anyone to transact with yet. So I hope to know more walking into this. But I did notice that when you back up the seed for your Monero wallet, in addition to your seed words, you also have a block height. And I guess that this block height is very important for syncing a Monero wallet because you want to make sure that you don't have to scan the chain from before your wallet was created because that would be a huge computational waste. Yeah, it's a very important part of uh, when you're creating a wallet in Monero. And there are some there's some changes that have been made that uh, specific wallets have integrated, which use a, a new approach to seed phrases that includes the restore height as part of the seed phrase, which is a really cool functionality. So you don't have to have that extra piece of data that hopefully you write down. Um, but like you said, if you don't keep that restore height and you for some reason can't estimate even the date that you created the wallet and you want to sync from the first block in Monero, it's going to take a very long time because, like I said, you have to go through every single transaction and check those outputs against your own private keys to see what belongs to you. Like, it's not a oppressively long process. It's not fast. But as long as you are transacting fairly regularly, like I never I never notice a, a sync time being something that that slows me down. I also obviously run my own node, multiple nodes, but it, it's something that we are definitely aware of is is one of the drawbacks. But there's also some cool approaches that are being done, um, like in the upcoming network upgrade for Monero. We'll deploy something called view tags, which essentially allow you to, while preserving your privacy, add a tag to any transaction that you send or receive so that you can look at all transactions, but basically save yourself from doing a bunch of the costly compute to check each of those transactions. And just kind of, you can think of it like a box with an address label on it, and you can just quickly glance at the address label. You still have to look at the box, but you don't have to dig through the box to figure out if the thing inside is yours. And so those view tags, they're going to reduce 
sync time from the compute perspective by 35 to 40 percent after that network upgrade so there are ways to work around some of this you can also run a, a light wallet where you're offloading that sync to someone else but there are privacy implications there so there's always pros and cons always trade-offs to these different approaches that provide strong privacy like in monero one of the, the beautiful things with these one-time addresses is i can post a public donation address which i have on my my blog and, and on my podcast site for a long long time i can post that and i lose no privacy by doing so no one can see any transactions that go to that address no one can see what i do with transactions because i can't see anything linked to that on chain and there's no privacy loss with that so it very much simplifies the the donations process or any kind of static address usage because in bitcoin if you use a static address you are absolutely sacrificing all of your privacy in order to simplify the the acceptance process for that kind of thing so there are there are some key advantages but also key trade-offs of course because with bitcoin the default is not private so if you wanted to have a private donation address you'd need to use a bit 47 paynim which is additional steps and i think it costs a couple transactions to set up that paynim now one thing you bring up is that one drawback of Monero's approach to doing a blockchain, doing privacy, is the increased compute burden of having to scan through every output. And it's, it's sort of harder to find your transactions. This is interesting because often we think of the constraints of a blockchain in terms of size, because how large the block is in terms of megabytes can centralize the network if running nodes becomes too costly or if you need too much bandwidth. But in fact, when we look at, say, the Ethereum blockchain, Ethereum actually has, actually, I'm not sure if it still has a smaller blockchain than Bitcoin, but a year ago, it still had a smaller blockchain than Bitcoin. But it requires massive amounts of compute because of all of the smart contracts and scripting that they're doing on that chain. It's interesting to think about these systems in terms of the engineering trade-offs. And in terms of engineering trade-offs, I'm wondering, can Monero addresses be used with a lightning-like layer two protocol? Do you think that Monero has the ability to scale upwards in layers like Bitcoin seems to be doing right now? It definitely does. There are some key caveats, but I think the the first thing I want to mention on this point is that Monero is not dependent on a layer two network for throughput necessarily, though that, that point is definitely arguable. Um, and there are lots of different perspectives on what transactions should go on chain and what shouldn't. But uh, a key thing in Monero is we are not dependent on any layer two or upper layer to bring privacy or fungibility. So there hasn't been as much of a push for layer two networks in Monero because we we don't we don't have the same pressing issues that Bitcoin does that make it it need a lightning network um, or make people think that it needs a lightning network. So there's definitely has not been as much of a concerted effort within Monero to build this out. Monero doesn't have the same adoption as Bitcoin. And so even though Bitcoin has very low fees right now, which apparently is mainly due to SegWit and uh, batching transactions, a more efficient block space usage, we tend to see layer two scaling technologies built out when there are periods of intense congestion and developers sort of feel pressure to provide some scaling. So has that not happened yet on Monero? Um, it hasn't. I mean, we Monero also has a lot of different approaches in the the scaling um, type of engineering compared to Bitcoin. And so Monero usually does about 
10, 12, 13% of Bitcoin's transactions each month. Um, that varies, obviously, depending on how many Bitcoin transactions there are in Monero. But generally, it's above 10% of the transaction of Bitcoin. So it's it's not tiny scale, but it's also not obviously bigger than Bitcoin or even the same size as Bitcoin and transaction count. But in Monero, we have something called dynamic block sizes, which there's a lot to get into there. They're not something that allows us to just scale infinitely, because obviously if, if block sizes get too large, it becomes cumbersome to run a node. It can become difficult to keep up with the chain tip. It can become too intensive from network or compute to keep up. There, there can be lots of problems if you just keep scaling block size. But what dynamic block size lets us do um, is it lets us, during these times of congestion, programmatically increase or decrease block size to match. There's a base block size that is always the, the minimum that we're at, which is 300 kilobytes. But if we have times of rush on chain where there are lots of people trying to transact, miners can actually sacrifice a bit of the the block subsidy itself in return for the added fees that including more transactions into the block will provide them. And so they can actually grow the block size um, as necessary. There's a lot of limits that go into how quickly they can grow it and the the penalties that they take from doing so to to make sure that people can't just spam the network and and pump up block size to some absurd number. But Miners can do that without needing any hard fork. There doesn't need to be any contentious conversation around should we grow blocks or shrink blocks or what should we do? They can just grow as necessary for the network. And then when there's that on-chain rush reduces, block sizes go all the way back down to whatever they should be at or 300 kilobytes being the minimum. Um, And so we can handle those times of short on-chain congestion. Again, that's not a a long-term solution to scaling. We're not going to onboard the world onto Monero's layer one. But it it allows for those those short times of rush on chain to be handled quite nicely within Monero. I think the main reason why we haven't explored layer two networks is because a lot of the main driver, I think, in Bitcoin, while the talk has been around fees and, and scaling, there really have not been many times where Bitcoin fees were ridiculous. Obviously, it has happened. We've had times of rush. But like you talked about, a lot of the, the technology for reducing that blocks that block space usage is finally starting to get used properly by exchanges and the big actors on chain, which the vast majority of the, the transactions in Bitcoin are, are speculative and by exchanges, between exchanges, etc. And so now that that's been done, we've seen that there are empty blocks all the time. There's very low usage, low fees. So I think the, the push now for Lightning is this privacy and fungibility aspect, because people have, have understood that Bitcoin's base layer is not private and, and not fungible, or are starting to understand that. But with Monero, obviously, we we don't need a layer two to provide privacy or fungibility. I, too, have heard the talk about lightning privacy and fungibility, and I feel like I can't really evaluate those claims at this point, and I haven't seen anything substantive that really demonstrates how private lightning is. But what I see with lightning is that creating the ability to make instant tiny payments is a new form of payment technology. and so. For me, it's kind of unlocked podcasting 2.0 and interesting use cases that previously wouldn't be possible. So do you think that the development of Lightning was primarily, obviously there's this scaling argument and now a privacy argument, and do you think those were the drivers of Lightning adoption? Because to me, Lightning seems to be this expression of platform maximalism, of building new features into a system and then kind of seeing what comes out of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on the history of of why LN was started. I mean, it wasn't 
it was started before I got into the space at all. So I will definitely just caveat that with I'm not I'm not some Bitcoin OG who's been here since 2010. Um, so the the conversations that happened, I wasn't around for then. But the way that I've seen it by following conversations on Twitter and other platforms since I got into the space, it seems to have been pushed initially as the the scaling thing. All, all of our transactions will happen on L2 and then L1 will be the, the world reserve currency or settlement layer is kind of the, the way that it was pitched to me when I was getting into to Bitcoin in, in 2017 and 2018. Um, and it's shifted more. That conforms to my experience too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think the, the initial push was we can build all of these cool applications using it. Um, the, I mean, the instant transaction, again, that has lots of caveats because finality is very different in Lightning Network than on-chain. Um, so there are lots of caveats to the, the whole instant thing. But I don't think that the the application layer, like Lightning as the application layer, was the original intent. But I mean, I think one of the problems of Lightning is that the, the scope creep has been immense from the early days and the, the promises that have been made have been absolutely immense. And the, the things on the base layer that need to be solved and people are wanting to solve with layer two are also immense. So there's been this massive, massive pressure to fix everything with Bitcoin, to introduce all the apps with Lightning, to to provide all of these solutions with the Lightning Network, which has caused a lot of the problems, both for privacy, for um, routing stability, for payments actually succeeding, for lots of different things that they go on within the Lightning Network. Um, but I, I don't think the initial intent was that, but there are really cool things that can be built out. I mean, the, the podcasting 2.0 use case, I think is, I mean, obviously I'm a podcaster, so I, I have seen that that is a very interesting use case. It's certainly not like I'm not getting thousands of dollars a month or anything like that. It's, it's very, very small amounts, but now I can boost you. This is so fun. What's really interesting is to hear a critique of lightning, because I think that there is a lot of lightning maximalism happening in the Bitcoin community, this idea that Lightning solves all the scaling problems. And I think I agree with you that it probably doesn't because you still need at least two on-chain transactions to open and close a Lightning channel. And there is a limit to block space. And so Bitcoin certainly couldn't, certainly couldn't accommodate the world's population today. Could it accommodate 10% at this point? I don't know. Probably not. It would take a really, really long time <laughs> if you wanted 10% of the world on, on Bitcoin. Um, yeah, I mean, Lightning is one of those things that I I keep circling back to and trying because it, it got me very, very excited in, I think, early 2018 was the first time I tried it out and bought some uh, some Blockstream stickers and did the all the fun things you could do with Lightning back then, which wasn't very much. Um, but it's something I keep circling back to because the promises are just immense. They've They've made very grandiose claims about what Lightning can do, what it's solving with Bitcoin, what you can build on top of it. But I think the reality in most cases has fallen pretty short of that. One of the things, and, and obviously a focus for me as someone who's, who's a privacy advocate, and I see the risks to a non-private cryptocurrency as being very, very impactful down the line. Impactful now, and and if you're transacting at the base layer, you're you're and uh, adding your transaction to a immutable chain that will go on for a very, very long time and can be looked at at any point in history. But at least with Lightning, like there's the ephemerality of your transactions. There are some some key benefits, but the the privacy that was promised is not really there. And thankfully, we still have strong on-chain privacy tools, really just Samurai Wallet at this point, that allow us to gain strong on-chain privacy, which I think still is the best overall approach. But Lightning does provide some good privacy guarantees sometimes. What I'm hearing is that 
Lightning doesn't necessarily provide promises about privacy. At the same time, the way that Lightning routes payments is quite complex, and Lightning channels do not exist on chain. So those, that data is only stored by the, the nodes that the payment is routed across. And so because of this complexity in tracking all of this data, there's the probably reasonable assumption that some Lightning payments are probably pretty private, and that's okay. But your concern, which I think I share, is that having a system where the base layer is very transparent, it's very trivially easy to perform chain analysis on this base layer and figure out sort of who the participants are. This is a attack vector for, let's say, the legacy system to try to curtail or cripple or attack the users of this new system. So what's your nightmare scenario? Where do you see the risks to Bitcoin and also Monero as the traditional world sort of wakes up to the fact that there is a new system challenging traditional financial systems? Yeah, that's a, a very a very daunting topic, but one that I, I think I, I think I think about a lot. Um, well, just pour out your nightmare fuel. Just I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I'll focus on on chain first because Lightning has a lot of different guarantees, advantages, disadvantages, etc. But um, focusing on the on chain perspective and uh, look at Bitcoin first. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of the adoption that we've seen with Bitcoin, especially by the legacy financial system, by governments. Um, because of the transparency. Um, and I don't mean that in a good way, because yes, the transparency, if, if our governments and everything are using Bitcoin and we can track their transactions, like that would be great. That's not going to happen, but that would be great. But the transparency is nice for them because they understand that the people using money, if they're not getting any privacy and if they're putting these transactions on a base layer that is immutable, that they can go and look at whenever they want without a warrant, without any kind of subpoena or wiretap or anything like that. Um, and they can tie these things back to IDs in the case of most Bitcoiners, because most people are using these know your customer KYC exchanges where you're having to go over, get over your ID and selfie and a nice little video of you holding up your ID and all these different things to prove who you are. And then you can get your Bitcoin because they have these nice tidy lists of Bitcoiners and they have the on-chain activity from the moment you withdraw and the moment you deposit onto those exchanges. They can build a very nice tidy picture of what Bitcoiners are doing on-chain in a way that they can't even do with a legacy financial system. I'd like to push back simply because I think that what you're describing is quite analogous to the legacy financial system. Because of the third party doctrine and the Bank Secrecy Act, we as at least American citizens do not have any expectation of privacy when giving their data to a third party. And so it is trivially easy for law enforcement to accumulate people's data, including financial data. And while Bitcoin is transparent, it is pseudonymous. So people do have the option, which is different than the legacy system, of buying some privacy using a coin join. And I think another key detail is that when people have bank account balances or even cash balances that are private, first of all, private cash balances are slowly being confiscated through inflation. And there is high inflation right now. No one can deny that. But if you have financial assets with a broker or in a bank or a checking account, you don't legally own these things. You have a claim on them. And it's trivially easy to seize them, as we've seen recently, where even very rich people, they were on the wrong side of the Russia situation, 
they had financial assets and real assets summarily seized without due process. I'm not defending them. Maybe some of these people are really bad. At the same time, there was no due process there. And so whenever I see a policy like that being applied to people I don't like, I always pinch myself and think, you know, in a year or two, someone else might be in charge and that policy is going to be applied to me too. So in that context, do you really see equivalency between legacy finance and Bitcoin? There's kind of two separate topics there. One of those is privacy and one of those is um, like self-custody or uh, protection against confiscation, like anti-seizure. Yeah. So the privacy side first, um, the answer with Bitcoin is thankfully you can opt into strong privacy measures. You can benefit from the pseudonymity and you can benefit from tools like Samurai Wallet, CoinJoin. You can do these things to gain privacy on chain. Um, so I'm not, don't, don't take what I'm saying as discounting the ability to do that. But I'm looking more at the broader picture of what are the vast majority of people using Bitcoin doing. And the vast majority of them are coming in through KYC exchanges. The vast majority of them are using wallets that do not provide any kind of on-chain privacy. Well, maybe not the vast majority. I don't know what the percentage is, but many of them are keeping those funds on exchanges, which we'll talk about when we, we get into the, the anti-seizure portion. But those aspects where most people are using Bitcoin in the, the default manner, which is transparent, fragile pseudonymity, but they're usually tying their ID directly to their on-chain activity. That breaks down their privacy in ways that the legacy financial system does not. And I think there's two separate pieces there. So one of them is your privacy from governments or law enforcement. And that one obviously is a tricky one with a lot of caveats because there are, are right ways that governments and law enforcement, I'll put it in quotes, but right ways that governments and law enforcement can go about getting data. And then there are wrong ways. And then the other as the other kind of piece of this is privacy from other people in regular life. So for the government and law enforcement angle, I think the main difference between the legacy financial system and Bitcoin is that the only thing they really need is that list of Bitcoiners, and they are getting that from exchanges regularly. They can request that at any point. And then once they have that ID and those links to on-chain activity, they don't need that data again, but they can continue to track all of your usage of Bitcoin from that point forward, unless you use one of these privacy tools like Samurai Wallet, CoinJoin, etc. The other piece is they do not need any kind of a warrant, subpoena, any kind of approval from a judge, anything like that to surveil Bitcoin uh, as a, a network to surveil the, the chain itself. And that's something, again, that's happening all the time. There's both active and passive surveillance within Bitcoin. There are malicious Bitcoin nodes that are being run by, by law enforcement, chain analysis, etc. There are malicious block explorers that are being used to, to honeypot users to collect network information, other information about them, and tie it to transactions. Sorry, let's not get too lost in the, the details because I completely agree. Where I think it's a little different is I guess it's hard to argue that the legal constraints on surveillance in the traditional system are strong simply because it's also easy to surveil Bitcoin. I guess I just don't see such a huge difference there. It's, it's getting less and less. The difference is getting less and less because the governments are less and less abiding by the laws that are supposed to restrict their surveillance of the things that we do. The difference is, and this is not a good thing for either Bitcoin or the world, but governments and law enforcement are not using those proper channels as much. They're using other ways to, to route around the, the legal protections that we're supposed to have. Spe specifically, we're talking about surveillance capitalism and the way that while law enforcement might need a warrant to directly surveil an individual, they can actually just go to a data broker and buy that individual's data from a company. That's completely legal and 
requires no judicial oversight. That's, I think, what we're getting at. Yeah, no, that's that's a, a great point. And the focus there is, yeah, they're they're getting more and more methods to be able to to gain access to our data to surveil us without going through kind of due process there, which is kind of evening the playing field there. So let's skip ahead because we've described the the very problematic privacy of Bitcoin. But what where is the attack? Is it simply that 90 percent of users are using Coinbase and then one day Bitcoin is not allowed to be withdrawn or there is a ban on self-custody? Where do you see the attack coming from? Or is it just this slow encroachment of increasing KYC and surveillance checkpoints at every turn? And the last point is, is I think you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think the the attack on Bitcoin right now is KYC or KYC exchanges. I think governments have obviously understood that attacking Bitcoin from a technological and a protocol level and preventing people's transactions is very difficult. It's possible, especially from the the minor censorship angle, which is a whole other can of worms, but that's much, much more difficult than simply building in KYC into the on and off ramps of Bitcoin. The key reasons why that's dangerous is that within Bitcoin and within the Bitcoin community, I think there hasn't been a strong enough push to build circular economies out. And so the places you can actually spend Bitcoin directly have been very few and far between. Well, we did have a circular economy push. That was called Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> yeah, that was a zing. That was a really interesting uh, part of a recent Citadel Dispatch where they were talking about how the Bitcoin Cash fork took a lot of the circular economy focused people out of the Bitcoin community. And so a lot of that focus was was lost for, for years after that, which was an interesting piece of that. But yes, that was definitely a, that's their focus and has been um, in, in many good ways all the other stuff with Bitcoin Cash aside, but their focus on circular economies have been excellent. I feel like a lot of Bitcoin cashers came to Monero. I was clicking around on Monero podcasts. One was about this Bitcoin Cash guy who was also getting interviewed about Monero. And I've always struggled to have sympathy for the Bitcoin Cash community, because if you look at their very misleading subreddit, which is called r slash BTC, it's completely misleading. It's a scam because they talk about BCH, which is the ticker symbol for Bitcoin Cash, and they act like that is BTC, which is not. BTC is Bitcoin, BCH is Bitcoin Cash. And who even knows what Bitcoin Cash is today because it's split two times. And so it feels to me when I look at that, that this is a very toxic community, probably bankrolled by a couple big Bitcoin Cash holders who just need new entrants to dump their bags on. So I haven't engaged much with the Bitcoin Cash community itself. Uh, there are definitely some people within the Bitcoin community or within the Monero community who are either also in the Bitcoin Cash community or used to be there. I, I think there are some shared approaches between the two. The main thing between the two is both Bitcoin Cash and Monero are very focused on actually using the tool, actually spending, not just hodling. So I think there's some kind of common ground in that that approach. There's also some, I think, kind of common ground between the privacy approach and that they've done some interesting things with larger scale coin join. I'm not going to speak to the effectiveness of that here, but I think the other thing is obviously they have thought more about on-chain scaling. Again, I don't think their approach is ideal, but in similar ways, Monero has thought about on-chain scaling, but in a much more restrictive and, and limited and programmatic fashion than Bitcoin Cash. So I think there's there's a little bit of crossover, but it is pretty minimal from what I've seen. The people who kind of the people who are behind the Bitcoin Cash fork have nothing to do with Monero, as far as I know, and no interactions with the community, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, one, one would hope. The other thing that you mentioned there that I think is a really interesting break from the Bitcoin story is this concept of on-chain scaling. Because I would say that Bitcoin, after the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, Bitcoin Cash was Bitcoin's attempt at doing on-chain scaling, and it failed miserably. And so I think that a common view in the Bitcoin community is that blockchains don't scale. But like you described with Monero's flexible block size, there is a sort of temporary attempt at some kind of on-chain scaling, at least until it stops working and you, you know, maybe develop a layer two like Lightning or something like that. I think there was a major damage done with the Bitcoin Cash fork, which was that it made people think that increasing block size in any way was terrible and would always lead to the demise of a chain. Because obviously Bitcoin Cash has died out in a lot of different ways, not necessarily community or usage or even necessarily circular economy adoption, though I don't keep up with their side of things really at all. But I think it made Bitcoiners like kind of have the see. You can't scale on chain. It's impossible. Your chain will die. But I think we have gotten disconnected from this the the idea of Nielsen's law and just the the amount that technology increases and improves over time. Um, both network bandwidth, compute, RAM, storage, all of these things rapidly improve over time, get cheaper and get more efficient. And when we hamstring a chain with a an arbitrary hard cap on block size. And when we have social consensus to not increase that block size, you're really artificially limiting what Bitcoin can do to the base layer. And I don't think that that's a good thing. And I don't think that there's much reason for that. The reason that I like Monero's approach is that it, I think, takes the same middle ground between Bitcoin and something like a Bitcoin cash or whatever else just arbitrarily raised the block size. In that within Monero, there is a set block size as the minimum. And there is the ability to grow the block size dynamically as necessary. And again, not arbitrarily, but there are rules in place to enforce that it only grows when it needs to grow or miners will just get no income, which obviously they're not going to mine at that point. And so it removes the need for constant social consensus or bickering around should we increase the, the block size? Should we not? Should we shrink it? You don't have to constantly be making these decisions around that. But you can come to strong social consensus on what are the parameters of this dynamic block size. And then you just let the network do its thing after that point. So I think there are interesting ways to improve on-chain scaling from the the actual throughput perspective. And obviously, the other piece of on-chain scaling is how do you increase the efficiency of transactions? How do you increase the efficiency of the way that people make transactions, whether that's batching or other things. But the actual throughput perspective, I think Monero's solution is very elegant because it's not something that requires this constant back and forth of what's the right block size. But we essentially say, these are the parameters. This is the cap that it cannot grow more than this per year. And then we let the network say, do we have too much usage for the current block size? Okay, miners, you can increase it automatically. You can decrease it automatically, and these are the rules that you have to follow. And so those things are still enforced by consensus, and we still have social consensus around that as well. But we don't have to do this back and forth every time there's network congestion and panic over block size. Or in these times of low network usage, we don't have to worry about, should we decrease the block size because we need to have a fee market that fits our long-term security model? It's a really interesting point because as you're talking, it almost occurs to me that Bitcoin always has had almost religious quality. And so current Bitcoin is almost the small block maximalist and Bitcoin Cash was the large block maximalist. And then 
Monero, what you're describing to me sort of sounds like yeah, kind of a practical, hands-on engineers coming up with a solution to do private cash in the moment. And another interesting thing that you touched on there briefly is the way that Monero is really about digital cash right now. There's not this design goal of challenging the very foundation of what is money, which is inherent in the Bitcoin project, I believe. That focus is still there. But from what I've seen in the Bitcoin community and just speaking for myself, I, I think a big difference and something that has led to, in my opinion, many very good engineering and design decisions is that the Monero community, by and large, does not view Monero as like the future world currency. We're not viewing it as every single person in the world is going to be using Monero. And I'll just I'll switch from we to me and I'll, just, I'll focus on my own views because I know there will be people who disagree with that within the Monero community. But in my opinion, Bitcoin is not going to be that and Monero is not going to be that. And when you approach a system from the perspective of we need a usable tool for those people that decide to opt out, for those people who want to have a good money to opt into, from multiple perspectives, from spendability, from self-sovereignty, from censorship resistance, from anti-seizure approaches. When you do those things while keeping in mind, the whole world is not going to use this. It's going to be a small portion who are the people who, who wake up, who realize the issues and who want to opt out. You can design it in a different sense because you're not having to, like with the arbitrary block size in Bitcoin, people talk about like, we want to be able to onboard all of these people and anyone can run a node. But then when you look at the actual effect that this arbitrary hard cap has, it means that, like we talked about a little bit earlier, you're saying that Lightning can be the thing that everyone uses to transact daily, and then Bitcoin can be a sediment layer. But it would take, I'm trying to remember what the exact total was of the most recent estimate, but over 100 years to onboard even a portion of the world's population onto Bitcoin. And that's if you only have Lightning channel opens being done. So if you don't do that, then you have custodial lightning, which you get back to a lot of the problems with the, the legacy financial system. And it's a whole other can of worms. But when you engineer things from the mindset of we want to bring everyone on board and we want to keep this everyone can run a node, small kind of opting out niche perspective, but you also want to onboard everyone to be able to transact, you run into a lot of these paradoxical approaches to engineering. Um, and I think a lot of that is seen in Bitcoin and not necessarily those things will make Bitcoin fail, but I think a lot of the design decisions were made in Monero and I think are very smart because they're not assuming that everyone is going to choose to use Monero and the world will be transacting on chain or in an upper layer. But it's going to be those people who wake up and choose to opt out. And that that dynamic block size, I think, is a good example of that and that we we're trying to strike this balance of we do want all of these people who opt out to be able to run a node and maybe long term it'll be more difficult than running a Bitcoin node. It's not really today. Maybe long term it will be a little bit more difficult, but it'll also be those people who care about self-sovereignty, who care about having that control over their finances and who are willing to say, hey, I have this old laptop. I'm going to beef up the hard drive place with an SSD and we do these things to be able to have a good but still cheap node long term rather than saying everyone needs to be able to run up a, a node on a Raspberry Pi. Um, so I think there's a lot of engineering approaches that differ because the Monero community or me specifically, at least view Monero as this tool that is a tool for those who wake up and opt out, which is not going to be 100% of the population. And quite honestly, it's probably not going to be 5% of the population. That really makes sense because I've been trying to sort of nail down the relationship between Bitcoin and Monero. And it seems to me that Monero still has this core identity, this core community, which have similar values. And so 
when you have that social consensus, that sense of shared values, you can do stuff like occasionally hard for do network upgrades that are less contentious and less complex than in Bitcoin. And that's really interesting. Now, do you mind if we jump to questions I have from your podcast? Like whenever I'm listening to your podcast, I'm always like, oh my God, I want to ask Seth this. And now I can with Boost, but but also now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not at all. Let's jump into it. Okay. I think one of my favorite interviews of yours was with Harry Halpin, who's created Nimnet. And it's a very complex thing to describe. Essentially, my take is that it's like Tor, but probably better. There's another overlay network that you mentioned called Oxen or um, Session. I think the Session Messenger runs on Oxen. Oxen is obviously an altcoin. There's a dev subsidy built in there. I think most Bitcoiners would describe that in negative terms. But you spoke with the team, so you must see some value there. What do you think about Nimnet or Session slash Oxen and these systems that do something in particular like privacy and then they have a token attached to that? Is that potentially workable? Is it interesting technology? Is it scammy? What do you think? I definitely, I mean, when approaching those things, I generally kind of lean with the the Bitcoin maximalist approach of why does this have a token and does it really need to have a token? Um, because there are so many things that get created. They have a token, but all that it really means is that the people who kicked it off get rich and everyone who wants to actually use the thing has to buy this random token that they don't want. And you kind of get into this this whole mess of you have 18 different gift card kind of systems because you need to have your Oxen to use with Session. You need to have your NIM tokens to use with NIM and, and, and all of these things. I, it can be convoluted and can hurt the user experience when using these things. And obviously many of these things are scams. It's a return to barter. It's a step backwards in many respects. Yeah, and I think with many of these types of projects, it, it is ultimately just a way to enrich the founders or the people at the source. I, I think with NIM and with, so I think with Session, the network is called LokiNet. The token is called Oxen. The app is called Session. It's very confusing. There's a lot of names there. Um, but I think the network is called LokiNet, so I'll refer to it as that from now on. But with NIM and LokiNet, I, they have good reasons to have a token because they're trying to use their token to be an extra step for civil resistance in the network. And when you do these these pseudonymous or anonymous networks where anyone can run a node, anyone can spin up as many nodes as they want, there's no restrictions there, like Tor, you have lots of issues with civil attacks on the network where malicious actors will spin up nodes either in order to prevent traffic by performing some sort of denial of service to surveil traffic to try to get a large enough portion of the network where like in Tor, if they have a large enough portion of the network and they happen to be the, the entrance and exit for your connection through Tor into the clear net, they would have full visibility into what you're doing. Um, with a network like NIM or with LokiNet, they're trying to use a token for a couple reasons. One is to incentivize node operators and the other is to prevent civil attacks, at least to stop them from being as easy because you have to have the token to be able to spin up a node. And so it complicates that process and, and at least puts some kind of a, a skin in the game and a, a financial requirement behind running a node or civil attacking. So the problem today with Tor is that to run a Tor node, you just need to basically be a kind-hearted person who cares about privacy. And those are few and far between. So we end up with the NSA running lots of Tor nodes and this is a symbol attack because we look at the network graph, we see a thousand nodes, we think, oh, we're probably pretty private if we're bouncing around between these thousand nodes. But actually, 80% of them are the FBI or the NSA, and so we're less private than we seem. So by adding a token, now 
You can earn money running a node so we can bring in business people or entrepreneurs to do that. And if you need tokens to run the node, then unlike Tor, the NSA can spin up infinite AWS nodes, but they can't buy $20 billion of session tokens or Loki Oxen token, whatever. Is that generally the, the concept? Yeah, that is pretty much the concept. I mean, I, I do want to caveat with Tor is not that broken. So I just want to make sure people understand it as a that's a hypothetical scenario. And I don't think there's reason to believe that the FBI or NSA are, are a large portion of the network. And Tor does a lot of work about around preventing civil attacks through their own centralized control of the network, which is a whole other problem. But we won't dive into that here. Is that a question you also have? And then, oh, by the way, there's this token here. So I think I'll, I'll take the two separately. So first, LokiNet. I think the key problem with LokiNet is they they want to incentivize their node network. They have a blockchain already, and they see the ability to use the existing blockchain and token that they already had long before they had designs for LokiNet, etc. They're a fork of Monero from way back when. And so they already had these things and they wanted to build out this anonymity network. They essentially built out towards basically the same approach to privacy and they already had the token. So I think it made sense for them to bake that in. The main problem is that there's such a small network and the market cap of the coin is so low that if someone wanted to civil attack the network, I mean, for a nation state, it's completely trivial. Like that's, it's not stopping the FBI or NSA from civil attacking their network. That's not going to be a preventative measure there. So they would have to have some centralized control. And the Oxen token chart looks like a hockey stick diving into the ground. I mean, there's clearly not a lot of people who want this token. So it kind of looks like a bad altcoin just from that superficial perspective. And the other problem is as they onboard users to their app, which is Session, who are using LokiNet, the users don't have to use the token, touch it, care about it, know that it exists, anything like that, um, which is good for users, but it also means that there's no financial demand or incentive for the token, which harms the civil resistance of the network. Sounds like lipstick on a pig, the whole thing. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely not my favorite. Like in, in the interview, we talked a lot about why they went that route, why they didn't just use Tor, why they wanted to do that. Um, and I understand their reasons. I just think in reality, I, I don't. I'm very wary of trusting their network as much as I would trust the Tor network. Um, mostly because of the scale and because they're a smaller team, but also because this reliance on a token, I think, kind of gives a false sense of security to them and to their community in ways that it it shouldn't with the scale that they're at right now. Now, jumping to NIM, I think there's a lot of differences. So very quickly, LokiNet is basically the Tor network, but on their own nodes. So it's there's not really new technology there or a new approach there. With NIM, they are taking the approach of a mixed net, which is a it's a very old concept for an anonymity network. It's been around for a really long time. It's been used for network anonymity, for email anonymity back in the day. Essentially, what that means is that NIM has kind of on the, the sliding scale between latency and privacy, where Tor has relatively low latency for an anonymity network and relatively good privacy for a network generally. NIM has, as a mixed net, absolutely incredible anonymity and privacy, but much, much worse latency. So when you're doing things through a mixed net, it's going to be much more tricky to do things like web browsing, which Tor, obviously the main usage for people is either browsing ClearNet through Tor or browsing hidden services within the Tor network. Within a mixed net, doing something like TCP over a mixed net is not going to be fun because the latency of each packet is going to change. The order of uh, how packets are delivered is going to change. And it's not going to be a great experience for use cases like that. So with a mixed net, 
The things that it can be extremely useful for are messaging services or, in, in the case of what they're really focused on, is um, cryptocurrency networks, as in like not the not like Bitcoin as a blockchain, but how Bitcoin nodes communicate, how wallets communicate to nodes. And they're able to provide extremely strong privacy. We could basically hide all the metadata. Yeah, all the network metadata in a way that is is absolutely superior in privacy to something like Tor. Um, again, it does have worse latency, so there are some trade-offs, but it has much better privacy guarantees um, because of there. there's a lot of different pieces that go into how that actually works. Um, but it, it does provide very strong guarantees there. Now, as for their token, they were originally going to do a colored coin in, on Bitcoin. Um, I'm not sure why that changed, because that did change. Um, I'm trying to remember which blockchain they're on right now. They were originally building on Bitcoin, which I think would have been awesome and i think would have been superior if they could have done that i don't know that we dove into why they switched in the episode um i'd forgotten at that point that they had switched from bitcoin colored coins but i mean i imagine they were paid to and i can't fault harry for doing it because harry just seems like such an og cypherpunk a lot of what we talked about on the show was the or at least near the end of the show was their vc funding because they are different than bitcoin obviously and that they have vc investors venture capitalist investors who have put money forward to help drive and create the network and they are getting a return which i think is mainly through nim tokens i know that is very anathema to people within the bitcoin space and is like the a giant red flag to people and i understand that and for me it's usually an absolute turnoff for projects like this but i think like you said harry helpin is somebody who's been around for years who is like you said an absolute og in the space in the privacy space as a cypherpunk as an activist he has a, a long and storied history he he doesn't have to do this to get money and he would not i don't think do this to just get money if it would ruin his reputation so I think there's a lot of reasons to give the benefit of a doubt. And and we talked a good bit about how he tried to build this before, but he couldn't get enough funding to actually build the dev team that he needed to get it done and get it done properly. And so he went the VC capitalist route or the VC funding route to be able to have the funds he needed to build a proper network. And ultimately, he wants to be able to just hand that off and walk away and it not be something where him or the VC investors are controlling or have any control over the network long term. So I think he's trying to strike this balance. Every single piece of it is open source. Okay, well, then I'm not worried because if Harry drinks from the poison chalice of VC funding and it doesn't work out and he has to create an altcoin that he gives his VC backers, fine. As long as the technological artifact remains, then there's a hope one day we can build it on something more robust like Bitcoin. That's why he was very clear and very sure to do everything open source from, very, from the very beginning, because he wanted to both give that transparency and ensure that no matter what happens to him, to VC investors, et cetera, people could just fork the project away and keep building the things that the money he got from the VC investors allowed him to build. So it is really it will be a net good for the anonymity network space, even if his VC investors go rogue and he goes rogue or whatever happens, everything is open source and uh, readily available. We better mirror that GitHub repo. <laughs> it's true. I hope more people are doing that. I'm I'm doing that with a, a Gidea instance with a lot of the important repos, but I hope more people are doing that. Since we've talked about privacy protocols and messengers like Session that have coins associated, can I get your take on Moxie Marlin Spike? Because I look at Moxie and I feel jealousy for his beautifully illiterate, alliterative name. And his incredible <laughs> like side ponytail thing. It's just, it looks amazing. I, I hate myself uh, when I look in the mirror and I think about Moxie. 
But he's also an absolute legend in terms of producing Signal, which is a very functional, private, but not anonymous messenger. And then he has a pretty cool series of blog posts about Web3. And I think he has a great critique of Web3, which is that Web3 is just a load of VC garbage. It overpromises on decentralization, and it's really just A16Z taking retail to the cleaners and taking all their money and data. But Moxie has also sinned against Bitcoin because he created his own altcoin called MobileCoin, which is just this nonsense new private money with VC backers that's incorporated into Signal. And so it's like, Moxie, this is a cash grab. You know, why did you do this? Why didn't you use Bitcoin? So as far as Moxie himself, I won't dive too deeply into the weeds because I'm not super acquainted with his background or the other things he's done outside of Signal itself. I think what he's done with Signal is a massive, massive good for humanity and has he has built out one of the the simplest and best user experience tools in the privacy space. And I think he's really set the bar for what a privacy tool should be, which is just a, a tool that works well that also provides privacy by default. Huge kudos there. Whatever else happens, if he goes absolutely nuts, he's at least built signal and provided that to people. Now, obviously, with the mobile coin thing, so this was a this was a really interesting one. This was, I think, a, one of the kind of points where my Twitter account kind of blew up because I very early on jumped on mobile coin and kind of dissected it and looked into what they were doing technically, what they were taking ideas from, kind of what they were doing and why they had chosen to use mobile coin instead of integrating something like Bitcoin. And diving into it a little bit more, so mobile coin essentially they took. Monero, they rewrote it in Rust, I want to say. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's right. And they integrated a basically a unique approach to doing a, a light wallet server, which allows the server, the nodes themselves within the network to do the wallet sync, but in a way that preserves the privacy of the users of the cryptocurrency. So it's, a, it's actually a really cool technique. This is using one of these Intel SGX hardware security modules, which are known to be the, the big issue. <laughs> not actually that secure yes yeah they've had had massive massive issues in the past and that is the the big problem and drawback of their approach is that yes it provides great on-chain privacy it essentially provides the same privacy as monero it provides good privacy to users who are transacting through these light wallet servers because their transactions and their details are not revealed directly to the servers but that trust is in that intel sgx um trusted compute module which is known to be compromised so Therefore, there is no trust. Has been compromised, not right now, but it has had many, many vulnerabilities in the past. And you also have the issue of only people who have Intel SGX hardware can run nodes, which now is only server hardware because desktop hardware, they um, discontinued Intel SGX. That aside, I mean, no one else is going to be running a node or mining mobile coin because it was 100% pre-mined. So all of the supply was mined right up at the beginning, much of which was given away to VC investors and other people. Um, no one's going to be running a node, but... And Moxie. Yeah, and Moxie. Yes, it was... I mean, if we... One of the first things that I latched onto with this whole thing was that the person who started mobile coin, essentially, he just said, the only reason we created mobile coin was to fund Signal. It was not because we had to create a new cryptocurrency to achieve the technological aims, even though when you create your own cryptocurrency, it's obviously simpler than integrating existing one if you have specific aims that aren't perfectly met by something else. It, it was a cash grab. It absolutely was a cash grab. It was done in an interesting techno technological way, not one that is decentralized um, and not one that is is trustless because there are some key issues with it. 
but it was done in an interesting technological way. But I think if we look at why they didn't use Bitcoin, the simpler question is why didn't they use Monero? Because Monero offers the privacy that they obviously wanted out of the currency that they're going to integrate. But the issue with Monero is the, the same sync issue that we talked about earlier in this episode. There are lots of ways they could have worked around this. So it's really just an excuse that they didn't use Monero. But they should have worked with the Monero community to see if they could fork in the features that would have made this lightweight enough. And that would have been a great project. And they could have even built, as far as I understand it, they could have even built their Intel SGX light wallet server on top of Monero and let users within Signal either use that or use their own node, which would have been a really interesting approach. And I think one that would have been probably ideal because most users don't need the trustless nature of not running on SGX. I know they're in an ideal world, yes, but there are some advantages to that for non-technical users and for other reasons. But giving that option would have been very interesting. So the reasons for not integrating Monero, I think, are very suspect. The reasons for not integrating Bitcoin on chain, I think, are very easy to guess and understand for anyone who understands Bitcoin, because both the, the scaling, or I should say all three of the scaling, the transaction fees, the transaction times, so really four things, they keep adding up, and user privacy would all be problems if they did on-chain Bitcoin within Signal. The main problem would just be if you're sending a transaction, fees and the, the time to confirmation would be problematic, kind of. Zero comp could usually be good enough in these situations because you're usually sending money to people you know. Again, there's a lot of caveats, but I think the more interesting question within Bitcoin would have been why didn't he integrate the Lightning Network? And that one, I think that that would have been an interesting approach because he could have really taken the route of, and this would, I think, have been not a good thing, but he could have easily taken the route of Stripe and just built custodial Lightning into Signal. It would have been very simple. It would have allowed interoperability with others. I mean, they could have easily built out a custodial Lightning solution and used that and that would have fit their aims that they they claim to want. Now, the privacy of Lightning is not as clear and not necessarily as good as MobileCoin is. There are definitely a lot of issues within Lightning privacy, mostly on the receiver side, but there are some key privacy issues within Lightning. But I think it would have been good enough, and they could have done a custodial or a, a kind of a semi-custodial approach to using Lightning within the wallet. While they didn't do that, again, I think really a cash grab. If they had VC investors and they wanted to do that, I don't know how else they would have raised money, but they could have tried to build on either Lightning or Monero, and it would have been interesting and usable, and they could have benefited those projects that are are larger and that are providing a, a greater good to society at the same time. So imagine having all of the, the eyes on and the money and the time of something like the Signal Foundation and all of the users of Signal on something like Lightning or Monero every time they use the Signal app. It would have been a, a massive win for adoption for usage, and it would have been a massive win for getting money and developer and research time poured into one of those things. So I think it, it was definitely a loss. It was definitely a cash grab at the core. They did it in a technologically interesting way, um, but certainly not a way that couldn't have been done in some way with especially Monero, but also potentially with Lightning. Another interesting thing about the Signal Foundation is to me, who's not particularly knowledgeable, it seems like they're quite hostile to user hosting. They intentionally took a centralized server provider approach and were not interested in a future where, say, you can host a server for your friends, family, and business and maybe federate it with other servers. They seem to really just assume that running your own server is not what normal people are going to do. So it's off the table. I mean, honestly, I think they took the right approach. I think we have kind of gotten caught up in this lust for decentralization in the Bitcoin space. And I know I'm going to get some hate for this, but decentralization is not always necessary and not always good. 
and federation is not always necessary and not always good. Um, and in something like Signal, the, the beauty of Signal itself as a, a protocol and a tool is that you can use Signal with centralized servers that are completely controlled by another entity that you don't trust, and it does not affect your personal privacy. The only piece that could is that obviously your network connection to their servers is something that could be logged, but they couldn't even connect that IP address with messages, with who you're talking with, with any of those other details. So one of the beautiful things of Signal is you don't need to have a trusted server. You can use an untrusted server, which is the Signal servers themselves. You can assume that they're compromised and still use Signal while gaining all of the privacy guarantees, all of the censorship resistant, all of these things. They gain the strong benefit of speed through centralization, of user experience through centralization, of using uh, specific approaches to encryption, like their triple ratcheted encryption, where essentially every message uses its own unique key, so you can gain strong forward secrecy within Signal in ways that you could not do if you did a decentralized or federated network. Um, There are a lot of advantages to using centralized servers for a tool like this. And the important thing is that if you go that route, and Signal went that route, is both the code is open source, that has to be done, and then the clients themselves have to do things in a way that prevent the centralized server from surveilling users, logging users, censoring users, etc. And Signal has both of those things. Um, And I think it also, you get the strong user experience and lots of other things that go with that, but it has both those things. And so I don't, like, I don't get the hate for Signal on not being a decentralized network, because I don't think it's necessary if you build the tools the right way. There are benefits to having decentralization or federation as an option. Like, I am a huge fan of the Matrix Protocol and their the main chat app, which is called Element, um, and I use that heavily. That's basically where I do all of my Monero-related chat, podcast-related chat, all of those things. And there are huge advantages to that, and that I can run the server. Anyone who uses it can trust me with their data, even with their network activity data with when they're connecting to the server, when they're getting messages, all that kind of thing. Um, and we can build these closed networks of servers that trust each other and that we know, and we can we can get unique properties from that. But decentralization, decentralization is not always something we have to have and often is more harmful than good when we're building out tools like this, as long as there are key things met, which are open source, user privacy, and, and censorship resistant, et cetera, are preserved even if the server is untrusted and things like that. Well, thank you for pushing back against my naive take on decentralization. It's not it's not naive. I, I mean, it's it's a common approach. And I think that has come from the dangers that do come with centralization that we run into with basically every other application or platform. Literally everything in the world right now. That's the problem is signal is the exception, not the rule. So if you have to choose between centralization and decentralization, usually decentralization will be the safer option. Again, that's not always the case. But there are definitely key advantages to that. And if you're going to lean one way or the other, yeah, usually that's the right way. But Signal is one of those great exceptions where it is centralized, but that centralization actually aids users. Well, that is a powerful finish, potentially. Do you have anything else that you want to express to stake your flag? So my blog is just SethForPrivacy.com. My my pseudonym across all different platforms is SethForPrivacy. Um, and that blog is mainly focused on, well, it's focused on a lot of things now, but personal privacy, self-hosting and Monero are really kind of the the three focuses on my blog. Um, obviously that's longer form. I have good guides on there. My podcast is called opt out and you can find that at optoutpod.com. Uh, and then I'll have all my previous episodes. That's very much personal privacy, 
self-sovereignty, self-hosting focused as well. Um, there's been a lot of different, a lot of different tools there um, that we've walked through and a lot of different philosophical ideas and approaches. And then on Twitter is usually the best way to follow kind of me throughout the day, which is at Seth for privacy on Twitter and then at opt-out uh, on Twitter for the podcast as well. But if you ever want to get in touch, all of my public contact information is on my blog, sethforprivacy.com. Well, this has just been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Seth. And I'm going to opt out. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs>